morning, everybody. I typically, when we preach for several weeks on a topic or a focus, toward the end, I'll just be really honest with you, I start to get worn down, where it feels as though I've been circling around the same ideas and I'm done, usually about a week before the sermon series is done, which is not a great thing. Uh, This has been completely different. Today's the last week for the fruit of the Spirit. We're finally at self-control. And it is one that I'm already grieving leaving behind. There's a part of me that wants to circle back around to love and begin again. And maybe that's the point. Uh, But today we're going to say our goodbyes to it, at least from this side of things. Although I would think Paul would probably tell us we should kind of keep it in mind as we move forward. I want to start, though, with uh, this is Alex. In case that wasn't clear. Uh, I was reading this week about, has anyone been to Ibiza? Yeah? This is like one of those things, if you raise your hand, everyone goes, wait, what's Ibiza? And I'm going to tell them what Ibiza is here. Uh, Ibiza is apparently like Cancun on spring break on steroids. Does everybody know that reference? Um, I don't know, where in Oklahoma do people go to get kind of crazy? Bricktown? <laughs> I don't know. The Capitol building. <laughs> they go to Dallas. Uh, Ibiza is this little island off the coast of Spain, and it has sort of become, well, one of its names is Gomorrah of the Mediterranean. So there you go. And, uh, yeah, it's this huge party city, uh, island, and from June till about October, that's all that happens there. It's all the revenue comes from. Uh, There are clubs kind of from coast to coast. It's just this wild place. And up on one of my newsfeed pops this uh, stories or tales from the bouncers who work at these clubs in Ibiza. And I thought, I need to read this right now. Uh, And so this is one of the bouncers at one of the clubs in Ibiza. His name is Alex. And I was reading through, and you start to kind of, they did a profile of five or six different bouncers or or, uh, front doormen. I don't know what they're called. Um, about what they encounter week to week, night to night. And it's mostly what you would expect. I kind of have a picture in my mind of what kind of person makes a good bouncer. Uh, And in my mind, I picture Chance Sparks. (laughs) Right? Um, Maybe so, Jerry says. So as I'm reading, uh, you know, there is a lot of drugs that flow through these clubs, a lot of alcohol, a lot of people who were there just to cut loose. And so it's sort of where all of the, uh, all of the freedom of the world meets the gatekeeper. And bouncers are really there to keep the peace, just to make sure that as many people can stay in these clubs as long as possible without chaos and anarchy erupting. And the question that keep coming, came coming up over and over again to them was, how do you control particularly British guys? Because apparently British guys are really mean when they get drunk. I didn't know this. Uh, but this was their advice, and I thought it was brilliant. Uh, they said, there's, there's one thing you need to know if you're a bouncer to help keep the peace, and it's to use the word please. You can never use the word please enough with people. But then uh, Alex, this is what he said. He said, uh, we just keep calm. If things escalate, we just keep calm. The calmer one is 
usually the stronger that they are. This also tells me I would make a terrible bouncer. I mean, seriously. Yesterday, I was driving, and someone flipped me off, and I lost my mind. I didn't say please to anybody. I had to call Corey and have a confession afterward. It was rough. But this is sort of the wisdom that they know, these experts in confrontation and needing to practice well, self-control, uh, to stay calm. This is the, the wisdom of the bouncers of Ibiza, one of my favorite sermon titles I've ever had. So today we're going to talk about self-control. Um, if there is a red button in my life, I will have pushed it. Um, and maybe you're the same way. There's this famous experiment, and it's got this concept behind it. This is the German word. Uh, the way to pronounce it is uh, Sitzflesh, so pretty simple. Uh, and the word means about exactly what it sounds like in German and then in English. Uh, it, it means to, to be at home in yourself, to be able to uh, sit calmly within uh, your body and your existence. Uh, it gets applied, though, to this concept that you can stay calm and delay reward or gratification for a period of time and not lose your mind. The experiment was this, though. Uh, has anyone heard of the marshmallow experiment? So here's how it went. They got these kids, and we have kids today in, in, with us. So this is about self-control, guys, so y'all should listen. Okay? Uh, what they would do is they would take someone like Judah's age. Judah, we just stand up so people can get a sense of how old these kids were. Uh, Judah's like almost nine, in between eight and nine. And they would take and sit down. So they would take and sit them at a table. And on that table uh, was this reward system, a marshmallow. And the kids were told, if you can sit calmly for 15 minutes and not eat the marshmallow, then at the end of that 15 minutes, you will get two marshmallows. And everybody knows that two marshmallows is better than one marshmallow. And so then they just watched what happened. And and they broke up the groups into three different uh, ways of behaving in the experiment. So group one is the kid who just eats the marshmallow right away, uh, like a puppy with something that fell off the table. I mean, just immediately, no self-control at all. And uh, there was a second group, and that was the group that would struggle, would try as hard as they could to hold off it, but couldn't make it. And so then they would break and eat the marshmallow before the 15 minutes. And then the last group, of course, is the ones who uh, delayed gratification, made it to the very end, and were given two marshmallows. Pretty simple experiment to look at delayed gratification, uh, sits flesh, the ability to be patient and have self-control. But then they did something else. This is one of my favorite things in studies now, is they, they studied it longitudinally, um, which means they took these kids and they said, we want to see you again in so many years and see how you're doing. And then we want to see you again in so many more years and see how you're doing. And what they found was fascinating. Uh, And there's been a lot written about this, this idea of grit or executive functioning, which means you have inside of you this kind of internal governor that helps hold these urges and instincts back a bit. Um, So the kids who ate the marshmallow immediately compared to the kids who were able to wait the 15 minutes and get two, uh, one group had higher rates of addiction to drugs and alcohol, higher rates of obesity, lower test scores. And this was true regardless of demographics, regardless of income uh, or household stability. There was something in th- those kids versus these kids. And then these kids who were able to wait um, was the exact opposite. 
There's higher rates of uh, school achievement, of uh, lower rates of addiction, higher earning potential. It was this kind of intense finding that they saw over time. So here's the question as we keep going. What is your marshmallow that's sitting on that table? For me, it's not a marshmallow. I hate marshmallows. Uh, it's just sugar with a weird plastic coating on the top of it. Unless it's in hot chocolate, I don't care about it. And so if they had a hot chocolate uh, mug and then they had marshmallows, I might would then throw one. But I don't care about a marshmallow. What's your, what's your marshmallow? What is it that it is very hard for you to be at home in yourself? Good or bad. I did a quick little list here. Um, some of these apply uh, to me. All of them apply to someone I'm in here. Write one more drink or one more email. You know who you are. Those of you who cannot turn off work. Uh, one more fit of rage. And then you're going to get it together. One more outburst at the kids because this time they really had it coming. But after this, you're going to start to calm yourself down. One more glance at the phone. I'm, I'm really bad at this. You've got to hide the phone from me. I've had family members who love me hide the phone from me because I don't have that under control. One more video clip at midnight. Uh, if you know what that means, you know what that means. One more minute of unforgiveness. When we nurse a wound because it feels kind of good. Forgiveness is hard work. This last one up here, one more simple answer to a complex world. This is quite a temptation. Everything is so strange. Nothing makes great sense. And it is tempting to believe that there are simple answers to the issues that vex us as a culture, as a church, as a Christian, as a citizen. And if there would be someone who would tell us the simple answers we long to hear, then we will eat all of those marshmallows immediately. One more. And this is the lesson of self-control. It's a beautiful thing that Paul puts it at the end of the list of the fruit of the Spirit. It's that it's not automatic. We've been talking for a while about are the fruit of the Spirit something uh, that is just given to us or is it the kind of virtue that you have to practice like it's a habit? And, well, we live in a world of instantaneous gratification. Everything is shimmery and glittery and shiny and immediately available. Credit extends until you have every single thing you could want. Food is cheap. Sugar, calories are cheap. Everything that sort of feeds into that animal instinct, we have figured out a way to grab hold of it without very much work. You know how hard it would have been 3,000 years ago to get a marshmallow? I mean, it would have taken months to figure out how to get the sugar and work it out and have the thing. Uh, Whenever I eat jelly at home, I always say to my family, it's like eating king's food because it's just amazing that we can have jelly right there in all kinds of variety whenever we want it for like $2 in three minutes to the grocery store. That is a new sort of thing. Uh, 
but those things slip by quite quickly. Has anyone been in a restaurant with a small child, and that small child will not be quiet? Has anyone been in a restaurant where someone else has a small child, and you're on a date, and that child won't be quiet? Uh, Now, when I was a kid, there was fewer options to get me to be quiet. Does anyone remember the days before iPads and iPhones and screens when you had kids? What, what did you do to keep kids quiet? Please someone tell me. Cheerios. <laughs> what did you threaten them? <laughs> Colors. So you had like a bag of, a bag of tricks. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, I've been guilty of this too. But there is a difference between a quiet child and a child who knows how to become quiet. And the work that goes into helping to teach a child how to calm themselves down and find their own sort of at-homeness with themselves, uh, that is short-circuited. It is. When we hand the kid a quick fix, when we hand them a marshmallow and say, that's enough, here's a marshmallow, here's a marshmallow, here's a marshmallow. Here's... There's a difference between the two. And this isn't just about kids. There is a lot of hard work that goes into being able to become quiet. The psalmist knows about this. There is this temptation toward the higher things in life, the mysteries that don't have easy answers, but you want to grasp at them. And psalmist says, my heart is not proud, it's not lifted up, nor are my eyes. I don't concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like a weaned child. Israel, hope in the Lord on this day forth and forevermore. This word for soul is the word Nefesh. This is one of those words in the Hebrew language that you just need to learn. So we're going to learn it a little bit more today. The word is nefesh. Let's say it together. Nefesh. It's a really simple word, but it has layer upon layer upon layer. When we say soul, probably quickly what we think is there is, there is me, my body, and then there is my soul. And if I could just sort of and pull it aside, this would be the spiritual part of me, and then this here would be the material part of me. And the two are kind of separated, but sort of inhabit the same space. Uh, soul in the Hebrew language is much deeper and integrated than that. Uh, so it both means your inner self, your inner disposition, but it also means your desires, your thirst, your cravings. So when the psalmist says at another point, uh, my soul pants for you like a deer pants for water. The idea there is that your very being thirsts after God like that parched throat of the deer that's been running and finds a creek. And the psalmist does an interesting thing here. He says <clears throat> that there are times uh, when life will start to rumble. When you will be disturbed within your soul, often the New Testament uses this word to be troubled or greatly troubled, and things will start to rattle, like that kid with its hand on the table trying not to grab at the marshmallow. It will start to kind of rattle inside, and you have this job to do, which is to calm and quiet your thirst, your desires, your hungers. 
Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And this is the image right here. This is you on the left, and this is your soul on the right. This is how you would carry a baby back in that day. Some people still carry kids around like this. Uh, A weaning of a child, I I think, is a difficult thing. I remember when we weaned each of our children, uh, which is basically the idea of going from nursing with the mother to moving on to some other kind of food that is outside of the mother. And uh, in that period is a lot of existential angst, is a lot of trouble. Because a child who has access to its mother can very quickly become calm. But that period of time where the child is removed and has to figure out how to calm itself is is troublesome. But there comes a point, a turn, when the child is weaned. And then... Calm. Another verse in the scripture talks about how uh, one of the uh, strong men of Israel imagines himself sitting between the shoulder blades of God, like a piggyback ride with God. It's a lovely image. And this is what it's like uh, to calm or quiet yourself. So, so here's a question as we keep going here. H- how do you self-soothe. When you are sitting and your insides start to rattle, how do you remain at home with yourself? I heard this story about this uh, this move that you do whenever you practice yoga. Uh, lots of folks in here practice yoga. I do about once a year and assume that I'm really good at it, and I'm not. But one of the things you do, you know this if you've seen it, is there's lots of what they call inversions, and I call them handstands. Actually, what I call them is opportunities to fall in front of a lot of people. But you, you sort of keep going up on your hands or up on your head to try and balance yourself. <coughs> uh, one of the things that they'll do, though, is they'll say, okay, like after you've been doing this for a while with the class and you've fallen over and over again, I won't do it for you because I don't know what will happen. You sit back down with your head up and you put your hands sort of over your head and you're asked to to calm yourself and feel yourself grounded again in the way that the world works. This is the way we spend most of our time is with our heads up and our feet down and we can make that balance work. And so you, you compose yourself again. But then... Uh, the instruction is to then go back into an inversion. But you keep your hands where they are. And there's this weird kind of balancing that happens. I don't know how to do it. Uh, where all of the sudden there's this alignment that happens. But there's this beautiful line, which is, can you hold your balance when the world is upside down? Can you hold that sense of peace when everything flips? The other meaning for the word nephesh is the root to breathe. The idea of the soul is that which refreshes you through the act of breathing. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that there is something sacred and holy about the way that we breathe in and out the gifts that God has given us. When I get really anxious, I have a bad habit of holding my breath. And if you're around me and you notice that I'm tense, you just have to listen and you can hear me. I breathe like, well, like this. 
you can hear it cut off. And I don't realize I'm doing it until I get a headache, until I start to feel a pain in the back of my neck. But my breathing is the first thing to go whenever I get anxious. This idea of, of breathing in and out. Even earlier, whenever we, uh, whenever we had a time of silence, I stepped in the back and I watched what a lot of you did. And uh, everyone I watched, they began to focus on their own breathing. There's something really elemental and instinctual about this. When you have to calm yourself down, and moments of silence are moments where we have to calm ourselves down. Everyone starts to try and find a rhythm of breathing. Because the psalmist knows, just like the Old Testament writers know, that there is a connection between our ability to let in the gift that is God and breathe it back out into the world. So we're going to do that for a second, okay? There's a symbol here for a reason. Um, I didn't know how else to get at what is the chaos of being alive in this world. But where you are right now, let's for a moment see if we can hold that center. If we can calm and quiet our own beings like like a weaned child, because this is what the world sounds like. Right? You know this world. And it will will sometimes come out of nowhere, and it will just simply, simply shake you to your core when you were just sitting there reading a book or eating a meal and immediately a memory will come back or a trauma or an anxiety or the money's not going to come in this month and the world will start. But there are other times, right, where you just kind of live, live in this dull anxiety. What do we do in those moments to calm ourselves? Again, the question, is the fruit of the Spirit a gift, or is it the product of some kind of effort on our part? And the answer is yes. The answer is both. It's always a paradox, y'all. I love this this quote. No one, I had to read this 20 times before I was able to figure out what it was saying. No one catches the wild ass by running after him. Yet only those who run after the wild ass ever catch him. Sit with that for just a second. For this image of self-control, we've been talking a lot about what we should not do. As though self-control is just a bunch of negations. So, you know, don't check your email all the time. And, and don't eat all of the donuts in the tray. And don't, and don't, and don't. As though the life of God is just one of a bunch of thou shalt nots. Dot, dot, dot. But that is exactly what Paul is talking against. That, that the fruit of the Spirit is not the kind of thing that narrows life down. That is, that is what the law was for. But... The fruit of the Spirit is to walk with God. It's this kind of what opens life up. It's saying no to a few things so that you can say yes to a different kind of life. Because there are like glittery distractions along the road all of the time that will peel you off one way or the other. And self-control pushes your mind back toward the way of Christ. But it it has to happen all of the time. Self-control is sitting there at the end of the list to remind us that it takes effort. That it takes effort 
to follow after Christ. It is not automatic. It is not just born within us. You may have had a conversion moment at some point in your life, and you went under the water, and you came out new, and then immediately you said, no more of that kind of stuff, no more of that kind of life. And for like a week and a half, you didn't do the things you used to do. But it did not take long before before you realize you still have to grow up. Two point four miles, then one hundred twelve miles, then twenty six point two miles. Does anyone know what these are? It's an Ironman. Yeah. Uh, so so two point four mile swim. I've drowned three times already. A uh, hundred and twelve mile bike ride after that, and then a marathon, just you know, for fun's sake. Uh, this is what an Ironman looks like. In 1982, there was a woman named Julie Moss who decided to enter into the Ironman in Hawaii. At this point in time, triathlons in general were kind of a niche sport, and so no one really knew about them or or cared about them unless you were one of these diehard people who ran these races. Uh, Julie was a graduate student studying physical education, and so she had to do a graduate thesis. And she thought, you know what I'm going to study is the effect of triathlons on the brain and the body. And she thought, I should go try an Ironman. So she trained for three months. That was it. Three months. And then went out to Hawaii to run this thing (laughs) and race this thing. And there's this great, uh, I've heard this story several times. I was listening to her tell it on a podcast, and I'll let you listen to a section of it in a moment. Um, she said, though, that like she got there and she was wearing sort of whatever you would wear to just go like exercise at the park. And she saw these other people and they were wearing like matching gear that looked custom designed for the sport at hand. And she thought, well, that's odd. And then she got on her bike and she sees everyone sort of leaned over in this strong aerodynamic position and she thinks, I'm just going to sort of cruise around. And so she's kind of riding and smiling and waving and she's a <laughs> She's a pretty fit person, but she did not know what world she was in. Uh, here's the thing, though. When she got off the bike and she was at the, the last leg of the race, she was in second place uh, of all of the women in the race. And, and they told her, the person in first is only like a mile ahead of you. And she was feeling pretty good. So uh, she takes off on her run, and she passes the first place runner like 15, 18 miles into the run. And this is sort of miraculous. If you run, you know this. And the few of you who do, I'm kind of, you either know this story, you think this story is insane. Um, But something happens at the very, very end, like the 100 meters from the finish line end. She could tell her body was starting to shut down. Your muscles start to conserve energy in weird ways, and you shift uh, your energy levels towards your most vital organs. And so it it becomes dangerous at this point to keep going. But she was so close to finishing. Before she was just doing it because it was an experiment. But all of a sudden there was a chance she could win this thing. And it shifted her perspective. Um, But then her body starts to break down. uh, And this last section here, and I'm going to, play it through the speakers for you. It's the last video of when she completely falls apart. She falls apart at that part in the race where everyone's gathered on the sides and can see you, and they kind of usher you into the finish line, and her her legs start to give out. Uh, She's narrating this story as she goes, 
Um, you can hear her talk about it. This is at night, so it may be a little harder to see, but, but listen to what she says and, and watch what happens. As night fell in Kailua Kona, an exhausted Julie Moss was clearly in trouble. And I had to keep finding a way to keep going, and my thought was, this is mine. Oh, you just fell again. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, this is the one that gets me right here. You fall down, and, it's, and your arms go back. It's like you're dying. Yeah. And, um... As I was putting one hand in front of the other, I saw this this pair of tennies go by and uh, these legs, and I thought, that's her. She's gone by me. And it was just, I just thought, I quit. And all of a sudden, there was this voice that just said, get up. Get up. Just keep moving forward. Mm. I could see the finish line about 10 feet in front of me. And I thought, get up. I cannot, I can't get up again. I really, I get up. Do not think I, I've, I've sort of worn out that tactic. Get up. But I can crawl. Oh, wow. Look at this. Oh, my God. And I crawl. And so here I am coming along. And the, and the TV camera lights are blinding me. And, and no one's helping her. My life was going to be different. I mean, I felt my life changing. I made a deal with myself. A deal was struck. And I don't care if it hurts. I don't care if it's messy. I don't care how it looks. I would finish. I would finish. So Julie Moss crawls the last 10 feet of the race literally an inch at a time. And that whole time, the cameras are on her and they capture everything. And I mean everything. And determination. Everyone who saw it was moved. And history has shown us that from that day forward, the Iron Man would never be. So she falls at that last moment in the race. And uh, she was quite ahead. And the woman behind her in second place thought that she'd already won the race. uh, That Julie had won. And so when she crosses the finish line, you can see her say, did I win? Uh. She said at that moment, the race changed for not just Julie, but for the entire community surrounding uh, triathlons, which was that the race wasn't about winning anymore. Uh, It was about finishing. That was a different sort of thing. Another person, one of the founders of the modern Olympic movement, said that it's, it's not about winning, it's about the suffering. And that's what you see with Julie. She is crawling. She's nothing left. She's dragging her body the last few feet. And when she says that they caught everything, you know if you've run a race what happens in this. She's soiling herself, right? She can't see straight. But she keeps going because there was some voice she heard that said, get up. Athletes that push themselves to the limits of their physical capabilities, they always talk about this point in a race or in this endurance challenge where you start to feel like you're going to die. And there's something about moving through that phase that opens you up into a new kind of awakening, they would say. They've made a choice 
that they are going to run this thing to the end. Now, Paul in the New Testament uses this imagery of someone running a race that is quite difficult. even says it at the end of Galatians here after the fruit of the Spirit that do not grow weary. You will at some point grow weary. Paul doesn't mince words about it. The question for us, though, is who said that this was going to be easy, this following after Christ? It is not pretty at times. To live the way that Christ lived. To follow where Christ went. There are times where it looks just like this. If we are paying attention to our lives and the world, if if we are truly in the struggle, then there will come a point when you will fall and you will give out. Weariness will become something more like a death. And there is no dignity left in the journey. It's just keeping going. If this is not, though, your understanding of what it means to follow Christ, then the first buckle of the leg and you will sit it out. And you will assume that just signing up for the race and you're good to go. That is not the life that Christ has called us to. We got this warning early on. Christ tells his disciples early on, if you want to follow me, then you're going to go where I go. You're going to carry what I carried. I imagine, I imagine that toward the end, when those disciples, those followers of Christ, had been moving toward Jerusalem. And they assume that they are in the middle of a victory march. And they have their energy left for a fight. Peter brings his sword with him and swings it around just to prove it. They've got plenty of energy left for the kind of journey they think they're on. But Christ has been wandering into quiet places and praying, has been begging God to open up a different kind of way because because Jesus is exhausted at this point. He stands, the man of sorrows, before accusers, both of the state and both of his religion, and uh, the world starts to rattle. And Jesus breathes and does not react. You could call down a host of angels and end this thing. You could sit it out. You could get on the back of the car and finish the race that way. Jesus breathes and absorbs and says, I'm not quite done going where I'm headed. Tradition says that as Jesus is walking along the way, he falls more than one time. This has been part of our tradition and history for quite a while. And he gets up and he keeps going. In the world, it does not start to get quieter and start to get more affirming for him, does it? At all. Starts to get more chaotic. And the crowds, they're yelling and spitting and hitting. And one of the gospel writers says that Jesus breathes his last breath and commits his spirit. 
And in that, we are shown the way that we are to walk, that we are to crawl, that we are to struggle. There is no promise this side of death that the clouds will part. There is just the grind and the slog at times. Self-control says that you will find your center, that you will sit within yourself and you will put one foot in front of the other, that you will keep getting up and moving forward. No one said this was going to be easy, this following after Christ. This is the only way to go. It's called narrow for a reason. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity. These things are both given to us, but then we work so hard to cultivate them. We are relentless in our struggle. Let's pray. Give us the strength this day, the tenacity this day to keep going. through whatever kind of gauntlet of life we find ourselves in, that we would put one foot in front of the other, that we would do the work. For those here this morning whose weariness has taken over, who are exhausted to the point of death, with a battle they've been raging in their own souls, in their own homes, in their own minds that feel so jittery at times, give them strength and courage and hope.